So that brings us to the tenth and final command. And this one kind of covers all the bases. This one lets you know that when you are extrapolating this murder and this lust, that it really was about the heart all the time. Because now we come to the command that says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you should not, which includes house, includes family. Not just the things and the stuff, but also the people. You should not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's pretty much everything. Anything that is not yours, you're not allowed to covet. It's one thing to drive down the road and think, oh, that's a nice house. It'd be cool to live in there one day and then move on. But if you drive by that house every single day after work and think that your life is going to be better if you were in that house, that's coveting. If you constantly go to that thing on Amazon and you know you can't afford it, <laughs> but you've wish list it and you keep looking at it, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to put this in my wish list because maybe one day and you move on. But it's another thing to constantly go to that over and over again and just think, oh, if I just had this, things would be better. That's coveting. And why is that so dangerous? Because what you're saying is, I'm not content with what God has given me. I need more to be happy. God failed me. You know you're not thinking that literally, but that's basically what you're feeling. What God has provided me is not enough. I would be better with that job promotion. I would be better with that person's wife, that person's husband that person's dog, that person's kids, if my kids were just like theirs, if I had that job, if I had that car, if I had that Bluetooth thing, whatever it is, my life would be better. And I don't have it, so my life is not good, so somehow God has failed me. But guess what? We all know that when we get that thing, nothing changes. Nothing changes. It's not, and I'm listening, I'm not condemning, it's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to have nice houses and that kind of stuff. It all depends where your heart is and what you're doing with those things. God blessed Solomon like crazy. God gave Abraham tons of wealth. God made Israel into an incredibly wealthy nation. But he also said, use that for my glory. Use it to expand the kingdom of God. Most of the time when we're coveting, it's for my life and my satisfaction. But there's nothing wrong with having that big house and that nice car and then using it to bless other people. But when you hold on to it as mine, that's when the problems come. And so what God is basically boiling it down is you shall not want anything in a way that you think that thing will make your life complete if God hasn't given it to you. Because here's the deal. The minute you begin to covet somebody else's time, you begin to covet their spouse, you begin to covet their life, you're now beginning to make that thing into a idol. And then it always damages other people's lives. And that's what it really comes down to. It's not about the legalism of this laws. It's not about the check, check, check. It's not about the behavior. The real question you should be asking yourself is, is God truly the God that I'm worshiping or have I made it something else? And question number two, what is this behavior doing to other people's lives? What is this thought, word, and deeds doing to other people's lives?
And you don't really need the Ten Commandments for that. Now, don't mishear me, but I could throw the Ten Commandments completely out the window. And if all I had was the Holy Spirit and all I was doing was asking the question, am I truly worshiping God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? And am I really, truly a blessing to other people's lives? I would still be obeying the Ten Commandments, right? It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's about God giving you some commandments that reveals his heart for you and other people. The question is, is it about behaviorism to you or is it about learning the heart of God and wanting to be like him? That's all the Ten Commandments were supposed to be. They weren't supposed to bind you down in legalism. They weren't supposed to be a weapon used against other people, whether they'll be your friends or not. It was only supposed to be, this is my heart for you. So those are the two questions you ask. The other thing you must remember is, you're a horrible scumbag person who violated all these commands on every level. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and yet God loves you. And this is why you can't use these Ten Commandments as a weapon against people. And unfortunately, the American church has a long history of using the Ten Commandments as a behavioral weapon and exclusion against other people. And we're all guilty of it. I'm not, I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. That's just human nature. But the problem is when we get in groups where we begin to call it biblical and godly and build churches around that idea. And certain people walk in the door and we treat them a certain way because their behavior doesn't match what we've thought. When it's like, what do you expect? They're not believers. Or what do you expect? We're all on the road of sanctification. Some sins are just more obvious than others, but they're all dark and evil in our heart. And that's what God has called you to. Are you seeing this as behavior or are you seeing this the heart of God and you're so in love with this God who is willing to die for you that you can't help but want to spend so much time with him that you begin to act like him. And so you view the sinner like he views the sinner with love. But you also view the sin in your friends' lives as something that's hindering them in their relationship with other people and you want to root the sin out and not root the person out of your community. And do you view your own sin in your own life the way that God views it, that you want to get rid of it, but you also realize that you are still worthy of being loved because God loves you? And that's the way we know to approach that. And that's not easy, but that just requires a lot of prayer from us and other people. And so these are the commandments. Now, they're not over with. They're not over with. This is the heart of it. And so God goes on in verse 18 and says, All the people were seeing the thunder and the lightning. Now remember, they've just heard the voice of God. God has boomed out these Ten Commandments verbally, auditorily to them. That's not a word I know. Um, All the people were seeing the thunder and the lightning and they heard the sound of the horn. They saw the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled with fear and they kept their distance. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They basically say, this is too loud and scary for us. We don't want to hear God talk to us anymore. God speaks to you, Moses. You speak to us. We're done with this. 
Now, that's a rejection of God on a certain level. If your spouse comes up to you someday and just says, I love you, but I think we need an interpreter that we're going to speak through from now on. I don't really want to hear your voice anymore. <laughs> that's not loving. So on one level, it's easy to say, well, yeah, that would scare the crap out of me too if I heard God's voice and it was booming and blowing my ears out. I may not want to hear that anymore either, but does Moses have different ears than everybody else? Yet he is able to handle it. I'm not saying it's not crippling him in some way. I'm not saying it's not convicting him. I'm not saying, but he, he does it because he loves God. This says something about their heart. Now, you have to realize they're not just saying the decibel level is way too high for, high for us. When they're saying that they're afraid, they're, not, they're talking about the, the, the voice of God. Remember, God is way beyond this world. It's not just the decibels of his voice. It's the righteousness in their voice, his voice. I mean, if you can imagine what you're feeling right now, hearing some of these commandments for the way that they're supposed to be. And I know I have only scratched the surface of what God really was getting to. I mean, God is so righteous and so holy that no commentary is really going to do justice to the Ten Commandments because it's way beyond anything we could ever imagine. And we feel convicted here. Imagine actually hearing it from the righteous God himself. I mean, so you guys know, you've been so convicted by the Holy Spirit at moments, it has crushed you. And that's just a one thing. God just laid out ten things that covered their entire life. It is not just the decibels. It is the righteousness in God's voice on a metaphysical level. It is the righteousness in these commands. And it is so convicted of them. It is so scared of them. They're so afraid they're going to die under judgment now that they say, I don't want to be this close to him. He has invited them into a close relationship, and they're like, this is too close. This is too close. From now on, we don't want to hear him anymore. But we love him, and we want the covenant, but we don't want to be in his presence with his voice anymore. Yet Moses is able to say, I can step in, and Joshua will, and some of the elders will, and Aaron will which means it is physically possible to handle this as a human. Only if your heart actually wants to be righteous. Remember, we saw the difference between Moses and the people in the wilderness when they immediately complained and accused God, and Moses immediately said, God, help us. Watch what your God will do. So what the real difference is, not the ears and the hearing, the real difference is the heart between Moses and the people. And they can't handle it. And this is why the only thing they'll ever hear from God is the Ten Commandments. On an auditory level. But Moses says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, so that you may not sin. Okay, Moses, really, what do you mean? Do not be afraid, but fear God. Sounds like a politician. (laughs) You're contradicting yourself, Moses. No, he's not. There's two different kinds of fears. What he's saying is do not be afraid of God in the sense that you think that he's an untrustworthy, immoral character who's only seeking to kill you and destroy you. You're afraid that you're going to die because God somehow wants to kill you for your sins. But 
fear God, meaning that you respect Him. You stand in awe of Him. The, see, the fear of God that the Bible is talking about, and I can't remember if I've discussed this, so please forgive me if I have, but repetition is the key to learning. So, um, The fear of God is when you realize that He is the God of the entire universe that literally thinks everything into existence and out of existence, and I'm now standing in His presence. And you have this sense of awe and wonder that goes beyond comprehension. But at the same time, you know that he can snuff out your life in a heartbeat. And that should give you a healthy respect. It's like fire. When I look at fire, I am awed and wowed by it. It is beautiful. It is mesmerizing. But I have a healthy fear of it, too. Because I know what it can do. And I know the more you handle fire, the more likely you are to get cocky, which means the more likely you are to lose control of it. And so there's a certain sense that I'm not him and he can destroy me and I don't have that power. And so I'm afraid of what he can do. At the same time, what he can do wows me and awes me. But at the same time, I realize that he's a good God. And that's what the fear of God is. Don't be afraid of him as the God who's just looking to destroy you. But fear him as the God who can destroy you and has every right to destroy you, but doesn't because he loves you. That's what allows you to boldly and confidently go to the throne of God, as Hebrews 4 says. And that's what Moses is saying. You have no reason to fear him as some sadistic God who wants to kill you. But stand in awe of this wondrous God who can and has every right, but doesn't because he loves you. But know that because he can and has every right, that should make you want to obey him. But at the same time that he doesn't because he loves you, that should make you want to obey him. And so sometimes I say, I don't want to sin because I'm too afraid of what will happen to me if I do sin. But at the same time, I don't want to sin because I don't want to lose that relationship with God. And both together are legitimate motivations. The fear without the love is not a legitimate motivation, but the fear with love is a legitimate motivation. And so this is what he says to them. So verse 21, The people kept their distance, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. They kept their distance, but he drove on in. Now Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you will tell the Israelites, You yourselves have seen what I have spoken with you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver alongside with me, nor make gods of gold with yourselves. You must make... Now notice he keeps repeating this command, because this is the most important one. If you can't get this one right, you're not going to get any of them right. You must make for me an altar made of earth, and you will sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your cattle. In every place where I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you must not build it of stone shaped with tools. For if you use your tool on it, you have defiled it. And you must not go up by steps of the altar so your nakedness is exposed. So the next thing that God commands after the Ten Commandments is the building of the altar. Now this is interesting because the altar belongs in the tabernacle or the courtyard around the tabernacle. But he's not going to get to the instructions of the building of the tabernacle until chapter 25. So why in the world? They don't even know about a tabernacle yet. 
Why does he immediately do the Ten Commandments and then command the building of the altar and then he goes through the making of the covenant and then goes to the tabernacle and then later gets the altar later? The altar is out of place. It does not fit here. But it does. Why? Because God knows that you're going to violate these Ten Commandments. And the 11th commandment, so to speak, is you shall repent if you love your God. And here's how you do it. This is what should allow you to have grace for other people who violate the Ten Commandments. And this is what should allow you to not fear God is against you when you violate the Ten Commandments. Because the very next thing that he commands is the building of the altar, which had one purpose and one purpose only, and that's for atoning for your sins when you violated the Ten Commandments. This is the heart of God. And if you can't give an altar to other people in your relationships, then you're not telling the truth of God. If you don't give them a means of repentance, if you don't give them a means of making things right, then you're not telling the truth of God. Does that make sense? And the ultimate demonstration will be Jesus. I mean, here's the thing. They kind of have an excuse. They haven't seen the most ultimate demonstration of God's love and sacrifice for people who are scumbags. You and I, when we harbor that lack of forgiveness for other people, we are, we have no excuse. Because we have had it physically demonstrated to us on the most ultimate level. Now he commands two, one thing. They're not allowed to build this altar and shape the stones with tools. Why? This is the altar of God for atoning for your sins. The first reason is if they craft the stones, then it gives them control or power, ownership over the altar. We talked about that with the second command. One of the purposes of not making graven images is we immediately begin to think that we own it or we control it when we craft it with our own hands. And if you're anything like anybody, you're always thinking about a way to perfect it, make it look better. And so what ends up happening is we want to beautify it as much as possible, and then it becomes a temptation to worship it or admire it for its fanciness. And this altar is supposed to be about your heart humbly coming to the altar with your acknowledgement that you violated God as your only God, and you're now laying the life of an animal to die in your place, and yet you're admiring it and saying, Dang, I did a great job. And this is my altar. That does not encourage the right behavior. You're not, and that's the thing is, God is the one who crafted the shape of the stones. He is the craftsman on creation. And so in a way you're saying you can improve on his craftsmanship. And so God forbids that for those two reasons. Any questions, comments?